Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday evening. Happy Hanukkah and so forth. Yesterday I did a Hanukkah talk, knocked that one out, and today I want to try to skip to keep to my schedule. I'm sorry for yard side biographies, um, as you'll see in a second. I do want to thank once again, as I said yesterday, the people who started now last week to send in some donations to help uh, me get all the equipment and the personnel that I need. I'm starting make at least a beginning on that, and I hope more people will. Be generous in their donations and enable us to really buy everything we need to do to improve our quality and to maintain this business here. Uh, can't do it myself. So I do thank you and I hope others will follow your example on Hanukkah time. Uh, I was presented this week with a whole bunch of names whose yard site is in Hanukkah time. And uh, I saw the Stay Chemed, that caught my attention. The Stechemet, which is not a camp, it's a guy, it's a book, <laughs> right? And this is a very, very interesting person, and more than him, the community he was connected with is extremely interesting, and I'll bet you it's totally unknown to 99% of anybody. Uh, I'm talking about somebody who was a Sephardic rabbi who lived in the 1800s, let's get that straight. Uh, Cheske Medini, uh, Sephardi from Yerushalayim. And he lived from like 1832 to, I think he died in 1905, if I remember correctly, in uh, Hebron. But he ain't what you think. He started out what you think, but he didn't end up what you think. A Sephardi, Cheske Medini, is born in Yerushalayim to an old Yerushalmi Sephardic family. Uh, I'm talking about from the old generations. There have been many generations in Yerushalayim. When he was a, born, there weren't any Ashkenazim, or hardly any. Because the Ashkenazim messed themselves up a hundred and some years earlier, in the early 1700s, when they moved to Jerusalem in some numbers and borrowed a whole lot of money and didn't pay back for a whole bunch of reasons. That's called Yehuda Chassid. Um, the reason they didn't pay back and all that is a speech I always take on the road sometimes when I do Scotland residence. Because the whole business was the note of Yehuda. But they didn't. And as a result... Any Ashkenazi was film something Yerushalayim would be killed or beaten up or something like that, and so overwhelmingly, if you're talking about the 1700s, early 1800s, only Sephardim could live in Yerushalayim, or a couple Ashkenazim pretending to be Sephardim. That's the situation. It started to change around the 1830s uh, for the Ashkenazim, but not till around then. So if you're talking about a Yerushalmi Jew in those years, it's a Sephardi, and just like all the Sephardim, they have their elites and their regular masses. In Yerushalayim, I'm sure you don't know this, they had a number of small but very important yeshivot, and uh, some nister, like we talked about before with the Kabbalists, you know, Dorachayim, and uh, what's his name, uh, Shom Sharabi, that's the Kabbalistic stuff. But they also had regular yeshivas, like we would call today, Gemarashi, Tosis, Mepharshim, Roshanim, and all that, Lamdus. And here you had 
uh, a very interesting situation where there was a yeshiva called Beis Yaakov, uh, which was bankrolled by a rich Italian family, Sephardi family from Amsterdam, starting in the 1690s. So he must have given him a big chunk of money as a, what's the right word, as a foundation endowment, Karen Kayamet. And that survived, you know, for over 100 years. 100, and I don't know how many years. So here you would have uh, members of the of the Talmudic elite, you understand? So if you figure there are 1,000 or 1,500 Jews altogether, because that's all there were, and you figure some of them, 100, I don't know how many, or track to learning, so this would be from that group. So he's born to like a, such a hush of a family. And therefore, his parents, and his father must have been a Talmud Chacham, some kind or other, one him for a life of learning as opposed to a life of business. And from a young age, he's one of these kids. We wouldn't have heard about him if he wasn't a smart and a genius and all that. So he learns with the local rabbi, rabbi uh, Yitzhak Kubo. Again, Kubo is not a name that most of you guys have heard of. But it's very well known in the Sephardic rabbinic world of yesteryear. Just to give you one example, I happen to recall the Chacham Tzvi, who was a famous Ashkenazic rabbi. Chacham Tzvi, heard of him. Uh, the father of Yaakov Emden. In the 1600s, he was from Central Europe, from Arabia. But he went to learn in Salonika under Yitzhak Kubo of that time. So I'm talking about Yitzhak Kubo of the 1800s. Fine. So here's a boy, Cheski Medini. He was born in 1832. He grows up in the 1830s and 40s. He lives to be about 70, 75. So he's born in the 1830s and 40s in the Jerusalem of old. And, of course, he learns up a storm. And, he, you know, he's a naturally takes to it. And he likes learning, that's all he likes to do. And he marries the right girl and all that. And he gets a up. And then, I think the Rebbe died or something like that, or his parents died. And he had no parnosa, so he moved to uh, Istanbul, Constantinople, which was the capital of the Turkish Empire. I am, of course, talking about a time when uh, Israel and Yushalayim was part of the Ottoman Turkish Empire, as it had been since the 1500s. So, fine. Uh... I mean, by this time he was married, you know, he had a kid, I don't know, whatever. So, uh, he goes over there because he had relatives there, and the relatives there were well-to-do. Now, I've read different accounts. Some say the relatives took care of him, others say they didn't, you know, they promised a lot and didn't deliver. Personally, I believe both accounts. I can hear each one. And it could be, as far as I know, for the first year or two they were nice, and then they said, no, no, no. On the other hand, I could be totally wrong. The reason I say totally wrong... Nobody minds supporting someone who's the real thing. A, it's going to be a big Talmud Chacham, and B, it's not wasting your time. What you don't like is you're supporting somebody, it takes a coffee break, you know, goes to the gas station. We're talking about somebody that looked really like the old school learned Yom of Alilo, Medini. Now, um, and he got offers in Istanbul because they could see there's a serious, very, very big Talmud Chacham. I mean, knew a heck of a lot. He ends up being on a Vadi Yosef type, which means a huge Bikiyas. Huge Bikiyas. And, uh, you know, they often want to be a dying here in Istanbul and, uh, you know, something like that, connect with the basin, with the Kehillah. I don't know exactly why he didn't want it. They say because he wanted to sit and learn. I don't believe it. Probably it's politics. You know, in these religious biographies that they write, they never tell you all the dirt that goes on behind the scenes. Really, there's plenty of dirt. Anything connected with a Kehillah position, a dying position, a basin position, and you talk about different families. And, you know, all that, it's, it's a dirty business. So the bottom line is, for one reason or another, here's a guy who's 30 years old now. It's in the middle 1860s. Remember, he's born in 1832. So by 1862, he's 30 years old. 
And this whole business lasted until eighteen, until he was 35 years old. So if a guy lived to be 70 or 75, for the first half of his life, he lived in Jerusalem, and then a good 15 years in Istanbul. And I know exactly what's going on. He knows a veld. He literally learns Yom Balayla. But what's the, you know, in other words, but he's looking for a position. After a while, a person, even the biggest learner, is looking for some kind of a, some kind of a job, you know, some kind of a position. Hopefully, obviously, for somebody like that, he's not going to be a camel driver. Looking for a position, the Rabbonus or something like that. Rosh Hashiva position. And there weren't too many. Like I said before, it's always a, a, a world of, uh, what's the right word? Family intrigues. It's always a world of protexia. He obviously didn't have it. So as a result, when he was 35 years old, a certain uh, businessman uh, visited Istanbul from the Crimea, which is on the other side of the Black Sea. It's in what we call southern Russia today. The Crimea is a Crimean peninsula in the northern part of the Black Sea. Now, if you don't know geography, which I am afraid to suspect a lot of you don't, look it up, because it's Kedai. And uh, he took, and he was offered a position in, in, in a shtot there that no one ever heard of, you guys, Karasu Bazaar, which simply means, the in, in the Tatar language, the, the river is called Karasu River, so the bazaar on the Karasu River, it's all Karasu Bazaar. And uh, it was a okay, well, you know, God's fine, a couple thousand Jews, that's not bad. And uh, he'd be the robot of the city, of the community, communal job. And he took it. And therefore, for the next uh, 30 years or so, uh, a little more than 30 years, so from the time he's 35 till his late 60s, that's what he does. That's where he became well-known. In this, for stunk in a little place that no one's ever heard of, the Crimean Peninsula, in a town, which is uh, not a small town in the Crimean Peninsula, but not a big one, as for Darwin, out-of-way place. If anybody knows anything at all about history, and they know anything at all about the Crimea, they might know about the Crimean War, which had been fought a decade before he came there, when the British and the French fought the Russians and beat them. And there was the big, the big town there is Sebastopol, which is simply a, a Greek word for Sebast is a king, and Pol is a city, it's a king city. Uh, and that was a famous fortress of the Russians that withstood, as long as it could, the British and French siege until they surrendered. And later in 1941 or 42, uh, maybe 42, the German siege, which is a, a huge business. Um, the Russians fought like crazy over there, but the Germans did conquer it in the end. I believe the Russians made a movie about it recently, if I'm not mistaken. I, may be mistaken. I think so. Sebastopol. But that's not where he was. He was in the town of Bazaar, Karasu Bazaar. And uh, there you have it. Now, this is what's interesting. Here he became a... Now, he's a Sephardi. Sparty, Sparty, Sparty. Some Yushalayim really descended from Spanish Jews. You know, the from kind that moved to Palestine. I don't know when, way back when. Way back when. Now, I mean, after 1492, obviously. And he comes from a Sephardic, rabbinic Torah tradition. That's a Yosef Caro. You know, the whole, the whole business. Going, going back to Spain, all the Gadoli Sephardi. There were people like that. Especially Yushalayim. This yeshiva was a Sephardi yeshiva. The Halachas Kitana started, the Chagiz, you know, they had a Sephardi, they had Prichalish, was there, heavy hitters. And now he came to a town which was very, very interesting because the town was composed of Crimean Jews primarily. Now you tell me, what's the Crimean Jews? 
This is my point. That's why I said I'm going to talk about something tonight nobody's ever heard of. Most people have heard of the Ashkenazim and Sephardim. But there's more than that. Primarily it's the Ashkenazim and Sephardim, and today most of those are gone. But, for example, there used to be Italian Jews, which was a separate minute, their own way, their own style. I've spoken about that in some of the podcasts when I talk about famous Italian rabbis. They weren't Ashkenazim, they weren't Sephardim, they were Italian, Italiani. They had their own Nusach, you know, their own Minhagim and all the rest of it. Minhagim in Torah and Fila, Minhagim in Halacha, Minhagim in Shtick, you know, their own Yiddish, even Italian, uh, you know, type of uh, Yiddish, is not the right word, dialect. Italy is one example. There were the Romania Jews, I've also spoken about me once in a while, who were the Jews of the Byzantine Empire, which was the Eastern Roman Empire, you know, for a thousand years, uh, which until it was conquered by the Turks. And these would be your Greek Jews and your what, what we call today Turkish Jews before the Turks came. And that's another Minag, Minag Romania. It's not the country of Romania today. Forget that. That's a different thing. In Jew, Jewish history and Jewish tradition, Minag Romania refers to the Jews of that region of the Balkans. And they have their own Minhagim and all the rest of it. I was going to do a tour there last year, one of my history trips. Never happened. But I'm planning one of these years to do it. If I do, I'll talk about the Minag Romania. So that's another one. There are a whole bunch of others. Fascinatingly, there's a whole thing called the Black Sea, which is still there. <laughs> and the Black Sea is that body of water north of the Mediterranean, which looks like a lake. It's kind of a lake, except that it empties into the Mediterranean. It's connected to the Mediterranean by the Dardanelles and the Bosporus, that narrow gap between uh, Europe and uh, Asia, which is in Turkey today. So, uh, look at a map. It's Kedai. And that's a whole area of its own. So, Turkey is bordering it. And on the other side, Bulgaria and Romania is bordering it. And then you get Russia, or what is now Russia and Ukraine. And on the other side is Georgia, Gruzia. So, maybe you've heard of the Georgian Jews. I think you have. The Shvili type. Uh, and other certain type of Jewish ethnicities there. Here you have Jewish communities been there. Since the time, I mean this, of the Baishani, and possibly the early Baishani. That's a long time, my friends. And they're not Ashkenaz. They existed long before Ashkenaz ever started. They're not Sephard. They existed long before Sephard ever started. So what are they? They're their own thing. Frankly, they go back to the time when the Greeks and the Scythians, the barbarians, ruled those part of the world. If you look at a map, which I tell you is Kedai, you'll see that in the northern part of the Black Sea, which is this big body of water, um, you'll see that there's a, uh, a peninsula there called the Crimea, which has been ruled by everybody. The, uh, uh, the Romans were there, the Greeks were there at the time of Alexander the Great, and various other Greek-type empires were there, and the Roman Empire was there later on, and the Byzantine Empire was there, and, uh, I don't know, you name it, you know. The, believe it or not, the Venetians and the Genoese ruled it for a while. And most fascinatingly for us, the Khazars were there. Now, listen closely to what I'm telling you. I'm talking about a Jewish community, which is not large, less than 10,000 people. You know what I'm saying? Which has been there forever, and they're always from. Now, when I say from, you know, I don't mean according to the Shulchan Aruch. These guys <laughs> were practicing Judaism before the Gemara existed. So, they keep Shabbos in their way. I'm not making fun of this. I'm saying, you know, they don't like fire and all that stuff. 
Uh, they keep kosher in their way. Uh, they have davening in their way. And they weren't living in the moon, so they do, it did interact with other Jews from other places, like from the Byzantine Empire, or from the Bulgaria-Romania area, or the Gruzia area, where other Jews came there as merchants a lot of times. There's a, there's a lot of commercial stuff going on over there. And Ashkenazi Jews came there from the German area. Russian Jews came to the Russian area. So they weren't living in the mood, but they're their own thing. Now, way back when, it was like under the Greeks and so forth. By the time you get to the late Middle Ages, it's taken over by the Mongol conquest, Genghis Khan and those guys. And by the time the Mongolians went through the area, of course, killing everybody and stuff like that. I'm talking about the 1200s. In their aftermath, they left behind these groups that were part Mongol, part Islamic, part this, part, part local, part Turkish. They call them the Tatars. Okay? Now, the Tatars wild behemoths in terms of battle. and used to raid a lot of places. But they lived somewhere and they had their own, shall I say, culture. Uh, these Jews had been there before, during, and after. So that these Jews became Tatarized, if you understand what I'm saying. The way you and I are Americanized, after all, I'm giving you a podcast about a famous rabbi uh, in English language. So they also, they spoke the Tatar language, although being who they were, there was a, they, they spoke a Yiddish, you understand? A Jewish dialect of this Tatar language. So go figure that one out. Uh, to make things even more interesting, have you heard of the Khazars? I assume you've heard of the Kuzrim. I imagine most people listening to this have at least heard of the Kuzri. And that's a famous barbarian people who, uh, uh, back in the 700s or 800s, really, more like the 800s, converted to Judaism. At least the king and the leaders did. Now, uh, really? A barbarian nation? And the Khazars was actually a militarily powerful nation once upon a time. They had an empire... Uh, they're one of these peoples in the Black Sea area that conquered a belt of territory around there, what we call today the Crimea and north of the Crimea, uh, the Caucasus area, north of the Caucasus area, where the Chechens are. You have to have a map to see this. But today it's like southern Russia and Ukraine, but they're really not Russian or Ukrainian. And this was a barbarian race that existed before the Russians showed up. And in the 800s they converted to Judaism, and nobody knew why. That's why Rebhuda Levi who lived in the early 1100s, long after this empire was over, wrote a book, an imaginary book, about the conversation between the king of the Khazars and the rabbi, why well, he converted to Judaism. But the bottom line is, whatever the actual literal facts are, which we'll never know for sure, they certainly did convert to Judaism. Now, why? How? The best guess, from a historian's perspective, is that these uh, Khazar uh, maniacs and all this met the Jews in this area, the Georgian Jews, the Crimean Jews, the others, were impressed with their beliefs and their way of life. They also had other political reasons to do this, and they converted to Judaism. So when you look at the Jews in the Crimea, are they the Khazars? Are they the people who converted to Khazars? Did the Khazars intermarry with them? All three are very like the likely answers, yes. You understand? And so it's just a very interesting Jewish community. And there also lived in the Crimea a lot of Karoim, Right? This was a big area for the Karaim, who are a different type of Jew. You know, they don't believe in Tosho But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the other group that does believe in the Tosho So these came to be called B'nai Israel, or by the time the Russians conquered the area, 
and the Russians were just as bad to them as they were to the regular Jews, the Tsars I'm talking about. That's because these Jews proudly said we're Jewish. We call us the Bnei Yisrael. We identify with our fellow Jews. And so as far as the Russians are concerned, if you identify with the fellow Jews, then you get the same Gezeris as the fellow Jews. Now, by contrast, the Karaites, the Karaim, told the Russian government, we're not Jews. We're a different sect. And the Russian government treated them much better. It's just the way it went. And so if you live in the Crimea, Crimea, or north of that, in the Odessa area, those kind of places, uh, you know, where the, what's the river, the Nestor, Dnieper River, all that, uh, this is where Stalingrad was fought later on. If you live in that area, if you're a Karite, you have a lot better, uh, uh, much less, um, what's the right word, discrimination, legal discrimination, than if you're a Jewish Jew. And these Jews said, we are Jewish Jews. So it's just a very interesting thing. Uh, very learned they were not. But, you know, they had along the way their, uh, there was a Ramosha Mikiev, you know, they, they had their rabbis here and there. Nobody knows exactly that much about it as far as I'm aware. I'm not the world's expert on it, but there aren't too many that are. Uh, it's a very arcane subject. And uh, they had people who wrote for them a special sitter and a halacha book and even a history book and things like that down the ages, but they had very few intellectuals. So by and large, these were simple yidden, as we would call them, today, who weren't very learned by, by and large, but on the other hand, they knew the basics, and they did it mimetically. This is what my father did, this is what my grandfather did. They picked up a lot of customs from the game around them. I remember that when they have Simchastero, they all shoot off uh, rifles and things like that, because that's what the game do on, on, on a holiday, uh, right or wrong, and over there in that part of the world, I mean. So th- these are who these Jews were. By the 1800s, they're part of the Russian Empire, a number of Ashkenazic Jews immigrated for business purposes to the Crimea also. So if you go to the Crimea in the 1800s, you'll find the first set of Jews who came to be called by the Russians and therefore by themselves the Krimchaks. So uh, if you're interested at all in anything I'm saying, I'm not sure why you would be, but at the, uh, at, all joking aside, it is actually a fascinating subject. So if you go in the, online... And you look up, you know, K-R-Y-M-A, whatever, C-H-A-K-S, something like that. Krimshaks. you find some information. And here's a whole race of Jews. And it's the middle 1850s. Uh, I'm sorry, 1860s. And they need a Rav. And they get this guy who's 35 years old, who happens to be like a super Tamachachim, but does not have a job. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Obviously, as I said before, whatever they write in the, in the front biographies, he wasn't part of the network. He's not going to get a job. And they said, come and live with us and be the rabbi over here. And so that's what he did. And he spent the mo- re- most of the second half of his life, from the age of 35 to like 68, something like that, in uh, <clears throat> this place uh, called the Bazaar on the Karasu River, Karasu Bazaar. And this was a community, I guess, of, uh, you know, not tiny. I mean, you know, it's a, seriously, you know, it was... Uh, uh, well, let, let me see here. I think there were like... Two or three thousand of these Krimchaks in this city. And also, listen to this closely, there was an Ashkenazi community. They were also, you know, regular East European Jews. And I think there were also like another two, three thousand. So figure, and, and both of them accepted him as the Rav. Maybe because they're cheap and they both wanted to pay for one rabbi, but probably because that's all they needed was one Rav. Uh, I don't know, wasn't there. And as a result, he was a rabbi of a community of five, 6,000 people, which is gone fine, in the middle of nowhere, so to speak. And uh, it was a beautiful shidduch. A beautiful shidduch. 
because they happened to get a guy who's like a world-level gone. He could have been the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. But because of the politics, he was free for uh, employment, and he became the rabbi in this uh, out-of-the-way place of Karasu Bazar that nobody ever heard of. And what was the result? Uh, they loved him. Uh, they were simple Jews, and so if you ever see, go in line, you'll get a picture of this Day Hemet. He's got a long, long beard with a Avad Yosef type hat, you know, the, the, the Turkish rabbinical hat. That looks so cool to them. And he gives brachas, and, you know, uh, I mean, it, it, was just, it just worked out great. And he also uh, tried his best during his years to uh, guide the community, make takonas for them. He tried to fix up, let, let's put it this way, don't ask what the gittin were like, and don't ask what the shechita was like, you know, before he came along. But they were very nice. You know, if he said, this is what you should do now, th- they'll do it. Meaning they're, they're willing to change, and they had tremendous respect for him as a rabbi. Who wouldn't? And as a result, he was there for, you know, all this time as a Sephardi rabbi who presides over a community of zero Sephardim. <laughs> Very nicely, too, in the Russian Empire. You can't get weirder than that. He's a Sephardi, a real Sephardi rabbi, but his community is composed of these Krimchak Jews, a Crimean uh, thing, and then, the, and then regular Eastern European Jews like you and I. So it's just, that's just an interesting situation. Now, in that kind of community, there ain't that much to do. What, by that I mean, obviously, you have davening, you have thing. He organized shiurim. Yes, he did. And I'm sure, what kind of shiur does he give? You know, I'm, 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 I'm sure in my mind, and Yaakov, uh, Mishnayas, you know, uh, I don't know, stuff like that. Simple things. Uh, although I'm sure also that he tried his best to train at least a small number of kids to be bigger to tell me to come, so maybe I could more place for them. So he had a good schedule in that. But you also got a lot of time on your hands. So a guy like this, what do you do if you have a lot of time on your hands? He is uh, a person with a grand vision. And uh, his reputation got known outside, in the Russian Empire, outside of, the, of his community of Karsu Bazaar, because other Jews came there, and they came back and said, this guy's really something. And little by little, other rabbis bound him, and they began corresponding with him. And so here's a guy who's out in the middle of nowhere, Who's corresponding with Yitzchak Specter and Anitziv and every rabbi in Russia? I mean, Yosef Zachary Stern and Shavuot and Hasidic, you know, the Shalom Meishev. You know, he's a, it's funny, and you know, if you go to Karasu Bazaar, there's one guy in town. I'm this is what they write. There's one guy in town that actually has a big thing at the post office because you know every day tens of letters come to him with Shilas, meaning halachic questions, because he soon got a reputation as somebody a. That's like a vadios if he knows everything. And B, he's got Savari Yeshara. You know, he's not crazy. He's not too far to the right, not too far to the left. He's normal, as we would say today. And he's a big posing. And so it's funny. He started to get a real big one of these Shilas and Shiva guys, where you get Shilas from all over the Turkish Empire, because they heard of him. He was from there. And all over Eastern Europe and Central Europe. And he's like a big deal. Now, I'm sure somewhere along the line, he must have had better offers. But he liked where he was. It wasn't a large community, but it was a very pretty community. And it's not fun living under the Russians. But as I understand it, he was zero political. He spent all of his time among the Jews and the people of the community. The Goyim, I mean, who are Muslims over there, they're Tatars. They looked at his long beard. I'm serious, I'm not being funny. They looked at his long beard and his Avad Yosef type uh, outfit. And they saw he really is a holy man because he was a Tzaddik. 
And, you know, there are many stories. For example, he wouldn't walk in the shul until people were already standing up, so they shouldn't stand up for him. You know, all those kind of stories. So he's a saintly person, as we would say today. And, you know, he never tell a lie and always be kind and all that. So that makes the Roshim even among the Goyim. And that, of course, helped the Jewish community that the local Goyim also held from him. And as a result, um, he was treated very well. Now, the big Gvirim in Russia, I'm going to tell you a funny story. The big Gvirim in Russia, when they heard about this rabbi over there, and he's such a nice guy and all the rest of it, and he's a posek, uh, and he loves Farm, even obscure Farm. So he must have been, like I say, a Vadioso type. You can read it once and memorize it. I think that's, I believe that's who he was. I think. So what they did was like this. This is funny. Let's say you're a millionaire in, in Moscow. There were such types. Uh, Vysotsky, people like that. So anybody who ever wrote a safer, send you a copy. So you give them, send them back $10, $50. Uh, what is Vysotsky going to do with a new peerish on uh, Bubba Karma? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? What's he going to do with a Shamshalos and Tuba safer from an obscure rabbi, you know, I don't know where, in, in Hungary? So what's he going to do with that? The answer is, he'll send it as a present to Chesky Medini. <laughs> send it to Rabbi Karsa Bazar, because I'm sure you'll love this. And so he acquired in this way a personal library of 10,000 volumes. 10,000 volumes. And here's the thing, he read them all. <laughs> and, you know, he knew them all. As a result, you're talking about a, a, a very uh, big gone, but he didn't have a yeshiva, you know, like Volusia or anything like that, or like in Turkey, and he didn't have a large community in the regular sense. It wasn't a small community, but it's a very simple community. If you go online and you look him up, you can find photos from his period in office, and you see the Jewish community, when he gives a bracha, everybody's on their knees, uh, Jews and non-Jews. You know, he had this reputation of a saint. as a big Talmud Now, more than that, he had a grand project. And the grand project was to write uh, Encyclopedia Talmudit, as we would say today. A Talmudic Encyclopedia. This is a very specific genre. And it's very rarely been attempted. In our lifetime, it's happening, what we call the Encyclopedia Talmudit. But I want to tell you something. Today's the 21st century. They've been doing the Encyclopedia Talmudit since the 1940s. So it's uh, 80 years now. That's a long time. 80 years. True, it's in Israel and they get a government salary, but still, it's 80 years. And they're only up to uh, Mem, I think, or Nun. The new one just came out. I I actually buy them because they're excellent. But a new one just came out. Uh, So he wanted to do in his way. Uh, the only precedent, really, for a real encyclopedia, Talmud, uh, a Torah encyclopedia organized by Alphabase, was Lampronti, was the Pachad Yitzhak. Uh, I don't know if I ever spoke about him. Maybe I did. But uh, the other one is Echitzki Medini. And he spent 30 years working on this grand encyclopedia, which he, of course, called Stei Chemed. That's where it comes from, right? And Chemed is Chesky Medini, you know, Chesmem Dalit. He was sick later on, they gave him Chaim but you know, it's a, that's his basic name. Now, as a result, the Stei which is like 18 volumes, is something he put his order in, to go by Aleph based through all the different uh, Torah subjects. And uh, Stei Chemba became famous. Um, you know, he, he spent all his years publishing 18 volumes, some after he died, and there were additions to it, and this, and that, and the other. It became a classic. So you're a rabbi in an obscure place, became world famous among the rabbinic world, the Torah world of high scholarship, because of this unbelievable cheater book that he put together. However, 
And Seichem is around till today, as you know. It's in uh, all the yeshivas. But I have to admit, I've always found it hard to use. I, ha- I have a Seichem, and I bought it when I got married. And it is Kabbalistic in many ways. But the Seichem, and it's a classic, and it's a very, it always was very popular. But in, I'm talk- I can only speak for myself. The Seichem suffers from a lack of good graphics and good editing. I don't think, I don't think it was a good editor. He had this business where he goes through olive bays, but he's not consistent. It's not always according exactly according to the olive bays. You know, you'll have chaluka and then chatzitza. I don't know, and then you'll have uh, chabura. You know, it's, so it it doesn't really follow totally the alphabetical order. Now I know there's some reason to it for it, and he has these long explanations. But his long introduction is so long. Who's got the patience to read him? At least I don't. You know, there are pages and pages of small print. And in general, it's written in this kind of unfriendly way. So if you're a tremendous, tremendous Talmud Chacham, which I ain't, you know, so then you'll sit down and just go through all this stuff. But if you're a regular guy, then, you know, you can use it. Uh, but, and a lot of it is very uh, practical. He deals with a lot of halacha lemaisa questions, especially from his time. And he has correspondence with all the big rabbis and they used to write to him on all these contemporary issues of halacha, as we would call it today. And it's all about Rikas and all the lumdas and all the rest of it. It's very heavy. And so it's a tremendous cheater book, but it's, I don't find it user-friendly. And I think, I, I fear I'm not the only one. I think most people have not found it user-friendly because it's very well, very poorly uh, organized, in my opinion. Right? It's a great work. And what it needs is a, I'm going to call it like this, it needs a minchas chinuch, uh, 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 you know, uh, r- rinse over, wash over. Or, or work over. Uh, when I was a kid, the old Minchas Chinus was the same thing. Very few people could read it. It was all a bunch of chicken scratch print put together with a lot of uh, Russia Tavis. When I was a kid, who understood the Russia Tavis? You know, not when I was growing up. I mean, a few people did, you know, Rabbi Ruderman, okay, but, but you know, n- most people didn't. So yes, there were Talmud Chacham that knew, you know, the, the Minchas Chinuch. But for most of us, not. And then they came out with the black minchas chinuch, you know, the, the machon yushalayim, as a revolution. And it turned out it's actually an easy work to understand because of the graphics. They broke up in the paragraphs, they put little headers on them and all the rest of it, and they organized it all on thing. And so today, the minchas chinuch is a completely different world. It's actually easy to use. When I used to work for art school in the Gemaras, I often, very often consulted the minchas chinuch because it's easy to do so in the new form. So they did, as far as I'm concerned, atchis amesim. They took a book which for the average guy was a mace simply because the quality is good, but the graphics wasn't. So I think it's the same problem with the, with the Stechemid. It still needs like a Mechon Yerushalayim or somebody to can just completely reorganize the information in a better way. The information is gold. The information is tremendous. Uh, and it's very useful and extremely interesting. And that's why you'll find great Talmud Chacham quote the Mechon I'm sorry, the Stechemid a lot. Uh, frankly, I've seen it a lot of times. I look it up uh, just off the top of my head because I see it referred to in the Sharm Mitzvah Balacha or something like that. You know, so he'll he'll talk about it. He's one of those guys that can go through the whole thing. But you have to be a lot of time in your hands and nothing else to do, and really desire to plow through all those thick, dense text. Uh, but I'm telling you, sooner or later, the the, the Stachemin will receive the uh, what's the right word? The makeover, extreme makeover that it needs. And then it'll be, in my opinion, very popular. It'll be very widely used. So I do use it from time to time, but nowhere as, mere, as, as much as I should. And, you know, just for the heck of it, here's the problem. I said, you know, before I do this podcast, let me look up what he says on Hanukkah. So I look at Ches, 
you know, and I don't see Hanukkah. <laughs> I'm going through one after the other. Marechah Zaches, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's no Hanukkah. I say, it can't be. So I look through the book, up and down, in and out, I see in the back of the Ches, there's like a little, very small kind of uh, index. And I see Hanukkah is found in another thing you call Asifas Adinim, or Asifas Aklalim, whatever. And there's a thing called Marechah Hanukkah. So you see the problem? If you're a fanatic and you want to find out what the state came has saying in Hanukkah, you'll make the trouble and you go through the chase. But today we live in the internet world. If I don't find it over here, I say, forget it, I'll go and find another safer. You understand? Moreover, when I looked in Marechah Hanukkah today, before uh, 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 talking about this, because, you know, it's Hanukkah, I figured, what does the state have to say about Hanukkah? I saw at least what I went through, and it's page after page after page. It's mostly lumbus on the... Uh, Famous questions of you know Tumot of Sibur and uh, a lot about the uh, the can you shaman Sreifa for Neris Hanukkah, meaning not exactly the most practical kind of questions over there. It's very interesting, and if somebody has a Chabura uh, or whatever they want to give, so this is a place you can steal stuff from. No question about it. But uh, I mean, no question about that at all. And it's on and on and on. But uh, I wouldn't say it's the most uh, you know, useful kind of a business over there unless you're really interested in this particular type of lump that's in connection with Hanukkah. It's all, now, if you want to have a slight idea of what I'm talking about, all you have to do is hold up this part of the Stei of Hanukkah on the one hand, and pull out a volume in the Encyclopedia Talmudid on Ches, because they've done that, and look at Hanukkah over there. It's night and day. There everything is supremely organized, with a million footnotes, and everything's a subject, and it's organized the way an encyclopedia should be organized. And the Stei isn't. So the guy's a genius, and he assembled an unbelievable amount of, of, of quality material. But as, in my opinion, he didn't organize it well. At least not for me. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but I'm just sharing you my personal opinion over here. I'm not trying to diss him or anything. Uh, I, I never found it so useful because of this lack of proper organization. But it is great, you know. Because if you, fi- if you find what you're looking for, you know, and occasionally I've had occasion for this and that and the other to do so. Even when I work for art school, you know, once in a while I do. And if you plow through it, you got to find it, you know, after you find it. If you find it, then you have gold. Now, I remember uh, years ago, it was Mamish impossible to find, but what's his name? The Deborah Cena Rub, the one who wrote the Bear Moshe, I think, is that what it's called? The, the Bear Moshe? The Deborah Cena Rub. He used to be in, 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 in New York, Hungarian. He made a index, a mafteach, which was very useful for the state Chemet. So imagine, until he came along, they didn't have a mafteach on this. So how are you really supposed to find something if it's going to be in the, in the wrong place, which it often is? So this is the problem I say with Stei Chemet. Having said that, there are a lot of people that are a lot smarter than I am, and, you know, big comedy chacham and all the rest of it, and they have used it very successfully for 100 years. You know, for Stei Chemet came, around late, came out in the late 1800s, and people wrote to him comments and criticisms, and he incorporated in subsequent volumes, to hear somebody who had a very rich Torah life through correspondence, not in physical contact with other great rabbis, is is, is interesting that way. And I guess it didn't bother him because he did it very successfully through this correspondence for decades and decades. And as I say before, he stayed out of the Russian politics. If I have a, I read a story once. I don't know if it's true. It was in the Sari Meya from Rabbi Maimon, the founder of Mizrahi, and everybody knows he took a full of it. You know, he says he exaggerates stories and makes them up, but he also tells true ones. And 
I remember, I think it was in the Sari May, or maybe it was Midi Chodesh B'chadsha, one of his volumes, and he said when he was very young, he met the Stei Chemed. I think, if I, I'm going this by memory, but I think I got it right. He met the Stei Chemed, or, or maybe, no, no, uh, some Mashalach was passing through over there from, uh, you know, Litvish Yeshiva, and um, they asked him to give a, a drasha. I think this is how the story goes, in the Shul, the Stei Chemed. And he got up and he said the following drusha, Elohein ha'ashamos, you know, like you say every morning in Eizim Akoman, you know, there's a Mishnayis and in Zvachim, so they talk about the carbon asham, don't they? You're supposed to recite this every morning in Davdin. So it says, Zivchei sh'almitzim ha'ashamos, Eilin ha'ashamos, Asham gzelis, Asham me'ilis, Asham shibcha harufa, Asham nazar, Asham mitzar, Asham tali. So he darshan on that. And I remember he said, these are the ashamas, these are the accusations they hurl against us poor Jews, the Russians do. Asham Gazelas, they accuse us of stealing, because all the Jews are going to have them. Asham Me'ilas, that we don't pay the taxes. Asham Shivcha Harufa, every time a girl gets, a, 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 a Shiksa gets pregnant, they blame on a Jew. Asham Nazir, they said the Jews, you know, I forget how that works. Asham Metzor in Russia, it was a famous curse. You're, you're, you're a, a leprosy like a Jew. And finally, Asham Tali, they're blaming us still for that guy that they were Tyler that they hanged 2,000 years ago. I'm giving this podcast on December 25. <laughs> they, they, this guy, they blamed, and, and, and so forth. That was the substance of his drasha, which is a cute word, by the way. I mean, you know, as a, as a darshan, it's a shtickle, interesting. And the story is that the Stechemen, Cheski Medina, came over and afterwards and spoke to him in a written. He said, Yasha Kochachem, and the Hadrasha, and the flaw, a great drasha. And I liked it very much. But who is this Asham Tali? Who is this guy that they hanged 2,000 years that they're still blaming us for? So he must have really been out of it. If the guy, he must have been a real Tamim. You know, Tara. Uh, and they say, you know, he never saw money till he was 35 years old. You know, he, he really lived that kind of a life. Now, uh, in the later years, unfortunately, he had a son who died, and I don't remember, and his daughters married local guys. I don't remember exactly what happened to them. Maybe there has children descendants from the daughters, or he doesn't. They married local Crimean uh, Jews, so this was the golden years of the Krimchak community, in their long history, when they had a guy who was a gon adir gon olam, and was a nice guy too. He was a tzaddik, a nice person, and everybody got along great. But in his later years, he wanted to retire and die in Israel, so he left the Crimea, he moved back to Israel, and I remember he went to Yerushalayim, then eventually to Hebron, and was in Hebron. If you've ever been in Hebron, I bet you many of you have, if you're listening to this podcast, have you ever gone into the yeshiva there? Not the Hebron yeshiva in Jerusalem. The yeshiva, the Mizrahi, keep us through God yeshiva in, inside, the, inside the city of Hebron. Shavei uh, Hebron. Yeah, maybe some of you have. Maybe some of you have. This is not necessarily what they take you on the regular tour, but it's not impossible to get in there. And uh, I have a friend, although I must say I forgot his name at the moment. I feel bad about that who Rabbi Mark introduced me to. And we've been in Israel once or twice, and he's taken, he's from that yeshiva, Shavik And if you go into that part, which is still guarded by the Israeli army, you know, a little deeper in the city, up to the end of where the Israelis are, inside the city. So you have this yeshiva, which is something called Beit Romano. There was this rich Jew in the 19th century, Romano, a Sephardi guy, and he bought this big house or built it or something like that. And in there he also made a yeshiva, uh, yeshiva, as far as yeshiva, and the Stechem had moved there. He lived in that place the last years of his life, and he became the chief rabbi in Hebron. Uh, 
And uh, that's where he died in 1905. And I'll tell you a story. You know, even the Arabs respect him because if you looked at a picture, he looks like an Arab sheik. He had a long, 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 long beard. And he had this uh, very distinguished look, like a real uh, Adam Garo and a tzaddik. And the Arabs respect him because he looked like an Arab sheik. And they could tell, even though he's Jewish, he's a holy man. But on the other hand, there are Arabs and there are Arabs. So when he died, there's a famous story that a lot of Goyim intended the funeral out of respect. But it's also true, a couple days later, a bunch of bad Arabs tried to steal the body to extort from the Jews money to rescue the body, like they're doing now with the Israeli soldiers' dead bodies, you know, in Lebanon, these places, that they're extorting whatever they can to get the bodies back. And so the Jewish community, I remember, had to post guards for years, every night, in the Jewish cemetery, not to steal the body of Stechemen. Imagine, that's a hilarious you're talking about here. Doesn't surprise me, but that's what it is. Now, uh, I'll tell you something interesting. As I said before, I myself find it hard to access in a very successful way to stay Hemed because of what, what I regard as bad, for me, myself and I, bad editing and organizing and graphics and graphics, you know, all the little print is back together. For some reason, he had a connection with Chabad. I believe, believe I'm telling you the truth. Maybe because he moved back to Hebron and Hebron was a Chabad. It's also possible since he was in the Crimea in southern Russia, there was a lot of Lubavitch back in the Tsarist times. And uh, they held from him and he held from them. And he had some kind of deal with them on the, on the Beit Romano. I remember all that. And all I know is that the Freer Dicker Rebbe was crazy over the Stechem. He saw it as great. And I think he, rec- if I remember the story correctly, he recognized what I told you, that it's not edited so well. And the Freer Dicker Rebbe wanted, and I think he commissioned, a, a reissuing of the Stechem in a better format. Now, I have to tell you, I've never seen it. Uh, I have the regular one that's reprinted all the time. And that's, you know, what the, like the original format of the Mechaber. So I don't know what the Lubavitch one is. And then the last Rebbe, Menachem Endoshner, I think continued it, but I don't know. You'll have to ask your local Lubavitchers about that. Um, <clears throat> but I know <coughs> that the Freer Dicker Rebbe and the, and the last Lubavitch Rebbe did hold very highly from the State Hemet, uh, which I think is just very interesting. You know, said. I'm not aware that the Lubavitchers I know, I never heard a word of that when they stay Hemet, but maybe I'm wrong. So, I leave you with this, that, uh, you know, history shows you you need mazel of all kinds. Uh, it takes great abilities to publish an encyclopedia of Torah what, in whatever way. I mean, you got to be a, a, a gigantic genius. But you also need mazel when the externals, what I call the art scroll stuff. Where does the art scroll excel? Where does the Machon Yerushalayim excel? The answer is in the organizing of the text itself. You need that things should be made clear with footnotes, with uh, you know a little hagdamas. Just think, as I said before, of um, what shall I say? The minchas um, uh, The stechemet deserves a tchias amesim, in my opinion. And I'm sure, since we live in a time where so many books are coming out on all kinds of subjects, he'll get one too. Uh, he was a great person, and. Uh, it's funny that fate put him in a community that no one ever heard of. Now, the story of these Crimean Jews, and with this I end, because I've gone over time as usual, is a sad one. Because there was only seven, or eight, or nine thousand, ten thousand altogether by the time you get to 1900. And they weren't a large community. And they had their own Yiddishkeit, you know? They had their own Minhagim, everything. And the Stechemet didn't really interfere with that. Uh, which is an interesting story by itself. Uh, they followed his Takanis, you know? And they're very loyal to his uh, tradition, but they kept their own minhogam. He didn't try to interfere with that.
But then, all I can tell you is, my friends, the Crimea was the wrong place to be in the 20th century. Because first you had uh, the First World War, which didn't reach the Crimea, but after the First World War came the civil wars in Russia between the Whites and the Reds. And then a lot of people were shechted, and the Crimea was a big place of shechita of Jews, and a lot of them were killed then. Then came Lenin and Stalin, and they crushed the, uh, the, the, the from culture there. And then came Hitler, and this town, I think, was all shot by Hitler, I think. Uh, the Curse of Bazaar, where he used to be, where most of them were shot, like in one day, uh, in one of those Holocaust things. So, uh, according to my understanding, a handful, very few of these people survived the Second World War, and then they had to live under the communism, and I don't know where the story is today. Maybe by some weird coincidence, somebody's listening to this podcast who comes from such a Missouri, such a background. That would be interesting. There are a few left in Israel. There are a few in America. That's what I read. I've never met anybody like that. If there's a show like that, then it's going to be very interesting because it's not Ashkenaz, it's not Sfard, it's not Romaniot. It's its its own thing with bits and pieces from the other Messiahs as well. It's a Tatar Jewish, from Jewish uh, tradition. And it's a shame that other than the Ashkenaz and Sfard, most of these others have been rubbed out. Rubbed out, I say, in the 19th and 20th century. But that's the world in which we live. My goodness, have I gone over time. But anyway, uh, that'll keep me busy a little bit. Have a Freilicha Hanukkah, and good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.